0: If you have a Bible, please grab it and make your way to Ephesians 4, uh, where Angela was just reading from. It's where we're going to be this morning as we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And over the last several weeks, I mean, it's an obvious thing due to uh, COVID-19, a lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people uh, have been furloughed or, you know, just companies have, you know, businesses have closed or whatever. Just people have lost their jobs. And so, Um, that's going on. But it's my confident prayer and hope that over the coming weeks and coming months, we're going to see a lot of rehires and even new hires. And I don't know what it'll be like for the rehires, but for the new hires, like if you've ever been hired to a a new uh, company, uh, especially maybe a larger corporation or, or any corporation, the first several days, you just go through a ton of orientation stuff. And they're just walking through, you know, their policies and their procedures and their uh, handbook, their personnel stuff, HR stuff, all this stuff they've got to go over with you. But also, somewhere in there, they're going to spend a good bit of time. Someone's going to come in and they're going to talk to you about the values of that company. And they're going to charge you to like as you go out to keep those values in mind, they're gonna let you know that hey, you are a an ambassador for this company, for this firm. When you are out and about, when you are working, everything you're doing is making a statement about this place. And based upon our values, here's how you need to live, here's how you need to carry yourself. And so very much they're saying you need to walk. In a manner worthy of this company. Because you are representatives of us. In a lot of ways, except on a gazillion times higher plane, that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is doing this morning. He's saying, listen, you are an ambassador for Christ. As you are out and about in the world, you are representing Him. And so make sure that you walk in a manner worthy of this calling that you have, this calling of salvation, this, this gift you have as a child of God if you are in Christ. And so that, that, that sentence, walk in a manner worthy, is kind of like a banner. It's kind of like a theme for the rest of the book. Like we're coming to a, a, a place where the book kind of changes gears a little bit. Chapters one through three, we're all about like who we are in Christ, our identity, that we are saved, we are loved, we are adopted, we are forgiven, we are uh, blessed, we are uh, predestined, we are just on and on, all these things that we are that you can read the statements of in Ephesians one and two, all these things that that we are in Christ, our identity. Chapters 1 through 3, so heavy on instruction. As you get to chapter 4, it's kind of turning, changing gears a little bit and begins focusing on like how we are now to live in Christ. And so it kind of moves from excer- from instruction to exhortation, from indicatives to imperatives, from doctrine to, to duty. That's kind of what's happening here. And this Calling, this sentence here, walk in a manner worthy, is kind of like a banner over which all the rest of the book is going to flow. And then the whole rest of the book, the whole rest of this letter that Paul is writing, is going to be just kind of calling to the Ephesian church to walk in a manner worthy in this area of your life, and in this area of your life, and in this area of your life. And so chapter 4, 1-16, through 16, walk in a manner worthy in the church. Verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 21, walk in a manner worthy in your personal life. The rest of chapter 5 centered on walk in a manner worthy in your marriage. The beginning of chapter 6, walk in a manner worthy in your parenting. Then walk in a manner worthy in your job, in your vocation, in your work, and then in your spiritual warfare, and in your prayer. just gets very, very specific for the rest of the time. But this banner, walk in a manner worthy, is kind of the, the theme for the rest of the book. And so as he changes gears here and we come to this new kind of, you know, section of the book, it's striking to me the very first thing that he calls out to us that we are to walk in a manner worthy in. He calls us, first of all, to walk in a manner worthy in the church, Before anything else, he causes us to walk in a manner worthy in the church. So, just look at chapter four with me, real quick. We'll go ahead and get one verses one through three in our minds. I therefore, so on the basis of everything I've said in chapters one through three, a prisoner for the Lord, like literally and figuratively, Paul is that. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so again, of all the things that he could... You know, we're going now and he's going to walk in a manner worthy and give us all these specifics. Of all the different things that the rest of the book he's going to call us to walk in a manner worthy in, the very first one he highlights for us is to do this in the church. To maintain... Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To maintain the unity of the church. Not to create it, but to maintain it. And so what I want to do first of all this morning is I want to kind of talk a little bit about why is this such a big deal? Why does he put it first? Why is God so concerned with unity? Why is he so concerned that we maintain unity? And then I want to turn and kind of talk about, and this part's in your notes, kind of the how. Like, how do we maintain the unity? And I'll give you two reasons, and those are in your notes. And so why? Why does God want us to maintain unity? Well, first of all, because it doesn't come naturally. Naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us. And and Paul here, I mean, he's just being very real with this with the situation. He is not talking about some sort of nice theoretical PC idea of unity because it's a good thing to talk about. No, no. He recognizes that Jewish believers, they've become Christians, and Gentile believers that they've become Christians are very, 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 very different in a lot of ways. They're different ethnically. They're different culturally. They're different in their religious backgrounds and practices. And now they have been made one in Christ. Christ, through His life, death, resurrection, has created unity in the church in them. He has done this. He's made them one. And so we want to make sure we keep in mind, like we don't, as a church, we don't create unity Jesus does that. He creates unity. It is a reality based upon His life, death, and resurrection. But we are charged to maintain it. And it takes maintenance. It takes work. When you have differing people like this in that church, when you have all kinds of differing people that a lot of times are sitting in this church right now, you're watching on, on TV, it takes maintenance and work to maintain unity but that's part of the beauty and the reason that God wants us to maintain it and so write this part down God wants us to maintain unity because here you go it reflects his character and is a display of his glory power and wisdom Right? God wants us to maintain unity because it reflects his character and it is a display of his glory, wisdom, and power. And so God is not divided, right? First Corinthians chapter one, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. But no, no, no. Christ is one. We are one. He's not divided. And so just as God is one, so too are we. To be one. And particularly in local congregations. And so very specifically, Providence Baptist Church, just as God is one, we as his body are to be one. And not just in name, but in function. And ever increasingly so. And in such a way as to show the beauty and the power and the wisdom and the glory of God, to display it, to display this, what has happened through his reconciling work. And so as I've kind of talked a little bit about through this series, because it's popped up so many times, the gospel is not shown to be beautiful and God's reconciling work is not seen to be powerful when everybody in the church is the exact same. Or when everybody that you enjoy spending time with in the church is the exact same. And they're just like you. And they like the same stuff that you do. And they're in the same life stage as you. Or they're in the same grade as you. Or they're in the same school as you. That, that's just normal. That's what everybody does, that's what everybody enjoys. It's easy to love people and build community around, you know, those sorts of things, just affinity groups with people that are just like you. That's easy. That's normal. That's what everybody does. But if that's all that characterizes community in a church, then the community in the church ceases to be remarkable to the world around us. It it ceases to be different from the world and it doesn't show off the glory of Christ because the community that exists around those things do, is a community that does not require the gospel to be true. You would have community around those things whether or not Jesus rose again or whether He didn't. It would exist around those things. Now, I am not saying that those things are bad or you should feel bad about having friends that you'd be friends with regardless of whether or not the gospel is true. Those are great things. Praise God for those friendships. Keep those. I'm not, I'm not knocking those. knocking those. I'm saying if that's all the community in our church is built on, well, then we have a problem. In our churches, we should be striving and seeking and aspiring for many relationships and deep-seated love that exist only because the gospel is true. Where, where our relationships aren't natural, just they would happen anyhow, but where they are supernatural because Christ did rise again. We want to seek to go beyond just caring about and being close to those who are just like us. And so we should aim at developing community characterized by relationships that are supernatural and would not exist, except for the gospel. I mean, think about the Ephesian church here. I mean, you've got Jewish believers, you've got Gentile believers, and they have been made one. And everyone in Ephesus is like, that's weird. Look at, they love each other. They used to hate each other. Now they, now they love each other. What's going on there? And it shows the beauty and the power and the wisdom of God's reconciling work. He's reconciled us to Himself vertically. And He's reconciled us horizontally in the church. He's made us one. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so the Jews and Gentiles here in Ephesians, they would not naturally be together, but now they are together because of the gospel and only because of the gospel. And that shows the character of God. One and the wisdom and the power and the glory of His bringing us together. And it confounds the world. When they see people loving and serving one another and including people, that the world would say, shouldn't really happen. It shouldn't really, like when, when, when they see uh, <clears throat> the rich and the poor loving one another, serving one another, deferring one another, jocks and nerds, black and white, Hispanics and Asians. Uh, any, I mean, any type of divide we could try to come up with that the world would say should divide. The gospel says, no, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. We have been made one in Christ. The dividing wall, cool and awkward people. And we don't just get in our little cliques. We love the body and make the gospel, make, show the power of the gospel and show the goodness of God in His reconciling work. As we love one another, serve one another, we are made one in Christ. And so as Ligon Duncan puts it, the great witness that we bear to this world that God is real, that the gospel is true, is powerful, is saving, is efficacious, that we are in fact the recipients of God's costly grace is that despite our differences, we are united to Jesus Christ and united to one another. That's why unity is such a big deal to God, because it reflects on Him. It reflects on His character and on His power and His reconciling work. And where we say the gospel cannot bridge differences, we are spitting in the face of the work of the cross. We're called to maintain unity, it is a big deal to God and therefore to us but this but you know maintaining it continuing unity it, it it takes work it has to be cultivated it has to truly be maintained and so that's why Paul is calling us here to a deliberate effort because it doesn't just happen and and you know this naturally i mean husbands and wives if you do not do work if you don't work on your marriage if you don't seek to cultivate it you will grow apart this can happen with children and and parents this can happen between siblings it takes work you can't just put it on autopilot you have to continue to cultivate continue to maintain things and so it is in the church it doesn't just happen and so what do we do How to, if this is a big deal to God and He is calling us to maintain unity, then how do we do that? How do we maintain unity in our churches? Well, number one in your notes, maintain unity through your conduct. All right, number one, maintain unity through your conduct. I mean, all the attributes that Paul gives here, marking off, you know, what it looks like to live a life, to live in a manner worthy of the calling, all those attributes, they will bring unity. But they don't happen easily. They take work. We have to work and they do not come naturally. They take effort. And so let's look at them again. They are in verse two, but I'm going to read verses one through three so we get the whole thing again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So there's the great big theme statement. With, here we go, all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so the first way out of this list here that we deliberately seek to maintain unity is we deliberately make an effort to live in humility. And so understand, humility does not mean like a permanent inferiority complex. Okay? It does not mean that you're the person who, who hangs your head the lowest and walks around with a dark cloud over your head at all times in sackcloth and ashes. Rather, humility, as C.S. Lewis so well puts it, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. All right? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. Humility is a self-forgetfulness. It's not standing on your own personal merits. It's not thinking, I'm smarter than anybody else in the room. I'm smarter than this person. I'm more righteous than this person. I'm better than this person. Whatever it is, we, we can build in our lives to try to think, you know, I'm better than this person. It's not a question of if we deal with pride in these ways. We all do to differing degrees and in different ways. And we've got to crush that. I know better what we should be doing in this situation than these people. It's a self-forgetfulness that we must come to. Where it's not about me. One of the greatest examples I've ever seen of humility was when I was in seminary. Our seminary president's a guy named Danny Aiken, and he was a member of the church that I went to. And the church wasn't uh, like a huge church or anything. It was a church of maybe 400 people, 500 people, something like that. And, uh, I mean, he's a guy who preaches to literally thousands of people as he travels around and whatnot. And he was gone a lot because of his role as a seminary president. But when he was there, so often, uh, it's, it's when I had some really you know, small kids at the time, so often he would be in the nursery, Holding babies. So that moms who or dads who were in there a lot of times didn't have to be in there. He could do that role. And so here you have this seminary president. Who anybody would love to hear, preach, teach, talk. And he would do what some people would consider a lesser job. But what he knew was actually one of the greatest jobs that you can do. In holding a baby and just telling them over and over and over and over. From the first moments they can listen. Jesus loves you. 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 you." Humility is self-forgetfulness. It's choosing to take the back seat so that you can bless others. And if we're going to manifest a world-changing love in this local church, it's going to start with the effacement of self and attack on our pride, and learning to consider others as more important than ourselves. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, so now he's given an illustration from Jesus... So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself to the point of becoming a human. Left the glories of heaven, took the back seat and he did it for you and for me. All the way to the cross to atone for our sins. So that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. With Jesus as our authority and our example, we seek to live in humility. We seek to cultivate humility. All right? To live in unity, we must cultivate humility. But we also must cultivate, the next word we see there, is gentleness. And gentleness is all about not demanding our personal rights or asserting them. It's all about not demanding that you honor my personal rights or demanding that someone does or or asserting them. We can't live as a Christian family until we are prepared to stand down on the demands for our rights. That you owe me, the, the, like what you owe me, what you should do, how you should treat me. If you don't treat me the way I think I should be treated, then I don't love you, I'm done with you. No, 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 no. We humble ourselves, we're gentle, we stand down, we don't worry about that. Now, I'm not talking about being weak or a doormat. Gentleness is strength under control. It takes strength to be able to turn the other cheek, it takes strength. To be able to defer to someone else. It's strength under control. Used for the benefit of others. I mean it's what a godly man should be. Using his strength. For the benefit of others. I mean I think about God. Like he could rip out your spine with a thought. But he doesn't. Instead he puts all of his power at work. For your benefit. Strength under control. And I don't think anyone who knows biblically who Jesus is, truly who He is, is, is going to dare say Jesus is, is weak. That Jesus is, you know, that, I, that, that that He's a weak person. You think about who Jesus is. God in the flesh. All powerful. Sustaining the universe by the word of His power. And yet Jesus himself describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. He didn't demand his personal rights, though he could have. And he also didn't assert them and and force them on someone else, though he had the power to do so. That's gentleness. It's strength under control, utilized for the benefit of others. Another aspect of conduct we need if we're going to live in unity is patience. Uh Uh-oh. Patience. I mean, for some of us, the microwave's too slow, right? And then this whole COVID-19 thing. Weeks on end of isolation in our houses. Patience. But the patience that Paul's talking about here has a a connotation of of love with it. Because in reality, a a lack of patience is a lack of love. Because 1 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient. And so to have patient love means that you endure annoyances and challenges over a period of time frankly, what Paul is getting at is that you put up with aggravating people. This is what it requires to live in unity in the church. You just put up with annoying people that get on your nerves. They aggravate you. They grate on you. And we all have these people. I may be this person for you. We all have these people. And we love and we live in unity and we display humility and gentleness and patience as we love them still and we put up with their annoyances and their aggravations i mean that's what jesus does with us right you know we aggravate him and yet he loves us he died for us he the father adopts us And so we must fight the temptation of impatience, where, you know, when someone gets it wrong, does something wrong, well, we're there as the judge, jury, and executioner. No, we're to be patient with one another. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to fall on our swords sometimes for the benefit of another. another. We're going to love, we're going to pray. This is what it means to be to walk in unity in the church. We are to be patient. And then the fourth conduct quality we kind of see here is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. And this is just leaving a little room. Leaving a little space. It's cutting one another some slack. It's saying you don't have to be perfect. I don't expect that. It's, it's letting go of idealistic and unrealistic expectations of another's behavior. It's giving them some slack. It's not getting all mad at some offense or some slight and storming out of the church and breaking relationships and fellowship. It's giving one another the benefit of the doubt. You you have this situation... All right. You can interpret. I mean, it's kind of like text messaging. Text is so hard to understand what people mean. Right. But you have an option. I can believe it this way or I can believe it this way. I can believe that they're being a real jerk and smart aleck. Or I can believe that maybe I'm reading it wrong. Well, we're going to go this way first. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and mistrust ourselves first. That's part of what it means to bear with one another. It's giving the benefit of the doubt. It's turning the magnifying glass away from trying to examine them, and it's turning it on ourselves and asking ourselves is this, like being very introspective, is this really that big of a deal? Like whatever the situation is? Or am I just being overly sensitive in this? Is this more of a me thing than a them thing? It's examining our hearts. Now, if it is a big deal, then we deal with that and we deal with it seriously and we deal with it soberly and we deal with it properly. But even that's born out of love. And so to kind of bring this back home, all, all that we've discussed here in these, you know, four character characteristics are, are really just like Christian living 101. It's nothing special. It's nothing, you know, that this is just what it means to be a Christian. We are to live like this. But so often we give in to pride and we give in to selfishness. We just slip back into that. And so we have to constantly be fighting it and seeking to maintain these characteristic qualities, looking to Christ. Again, both is our authority and our example. We're to live like this because this is what our Savior looks like. Humble and patient and gentle and bearing with even aggravating people, bearing with love towards even aggravating people like you and me. And when we do these things and we live this way, we show the glory of Christ. We give a visible display of God in the life of the church. But lest we misunderstand Paul and think that he's arguing, you know, for just unity for unity's sake... He, he flips right around immediately in verse 4 and goes right back to everything he's been saying in, in chapters 1 through 3. He just kind of summarizes it. He flips right, about, right around and says, listen, we, we must ground our unity in truth. We must ground it in doctrine. We must ground it in confession. We're not just unity for unity's sake. It's grounded in something. And so this is number two in your notes. In how do we maintain unity? Number two, we have to ground unity in our confession. Ground unity in our confession. And that's just an alliterated word. I had conduct when I confession, right? It's just an alliterated word that is basically kind of a summary of our doctrine. Summary of the truth of the gospel. But the point is that while we seek unity in the church... If there is not unity in these things in verses 4 through 6, then there's not unity and we don't need to seek to have unity. This is what our unity is grounded in. Our unity is grounded in the fact that, and look at verse 4 with me, there is one body and one spirit. Again, this is just a summary of chapters 1 through 3. One body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Folks, this is our unity. This is where it's grounded. It is a unity in the truth of Christ. These things. But I want to make sure that we do not get confused and start seeking to add to things over, around which we should be unified. Right? Right? There's a lot of things that masquerade as, as churchy-esque-like things. We should be unified, but actually, they're not. I mean, when you look at this list again, one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one, one baptism, one God and Father over all, notice it does not say one political opinion. Notice it does not say one musical style. It does not say one form of dress. It does not say one culture over another. It does not say one... View of handling open handed theological issues, end times, age of the earth, like those things are not closed handed. We're not unified around those open handed things. And specifically over very open handed, like sociological problems and how this should happen or how this should happen, or, or whether we should open up immediately or stay closed for a long time in this COVID 19. We're not unified in that. We're unified in Christ. Our unity is there. Jesus is our one foundation. He is a firm foundation. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All of these ones, not other things that we could add to them. The Word is our guide. And we don't take away and we don't add to. Jesus is our authority and our example. And so may we strive then, based upon His authority and based upon His example, to walk in a manner worthy in the church. Maintaining unity through our conduct, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, and grounding our unity In the truth of his word. Like Augustine put it, in essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Walk in a manner worthy in the church. Let's pray. Father, help us to this. It does not come naturally. I mean, there's some just very basic things, Lord, that we're presented with. We are called to be part of the church. And we are all sinners. And so there's going to be friction. And so, Father, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be humble. And to assume we're wrong before we assume someone else. Help us to defer. Help us to forbear. Help us to be patient. Help us to love. Help us to give the benefit of the doubt. Help us to live out the covenant that we have made with one another. To strive to live in these ways towards one another. And help us to disagree biblically. Help us to work through disagreements, misunderstandings, biblically. Help us to be slow to anger, quick to listen. And help us, Lord, as you bring unity amongst diversity. The unity shines out of that to show forth the glory of the gospel and to recognize that that unity is built around Jesus and not around conforming to a culture are conforming to different things it's just conforming to Christ and what he says and so father help us to this and help us to do the hard work of maintenance and father also help us to do i mean specifically during this time that we're separated and help us to do the hard work of maintenance as well in our in a in our local families amongst Married couples, families, children, siblings, maybe we haven't talked to or had as good of a relationship with. Help us also in those areas, Lord, to shine forth the light of the gospel and the hope of Christ and His reconciling work. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never received this free gift, this vertical reconciliation that you can have with God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and you'd like to talk about what that means, what that looks like to put your hope in Christ and be forgiven of your sin and have eternal life and hope in the midst of you know, uncertainty now, then we would love nothing more than to talk with you about that. You can do that by commenting as where you're at right now. Elders can talk with you. You can send in that contact card I've talked about. You can hop on our website and send an email, phone call, whatever. We'd love nothing more than to talk with you about that. But as we leave today, I'm going to give you a bit, a benediction that's actually from the end of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly... Then all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.